Hello and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And welcome to season three. Three. We did it. Yes, we did. Or we're doing it, I should say. Well, we haven't done it yet. We're in the process of doing it. That's right. All right. So, this season uh, is going to be comprised of the rest of this year, 2018, provided we can make it to the end, and the world doesn't explode. <laughs> the world might explode. It's terrible out there. <laughs> and we are going to be watching... Rain of fire like the world has never seen. <laughs> well, can we not... That's no quoting him on the podcast. That's why I changed the quote. Oh, okay. Fair. Correct his grammar and edit. And we are going to be watching four to five movies a month that came out that month in prior years. Right. So we'll start with 1978. 78. 1988. 1998. 2008. I can do my tens. Oh my God, I'm that old. <laughs> Yes. There are four decades that will fit into your life. (laughs) I will tell you a moment in my life that I had. That was the first stop. 1978. June of 1978. Oh my gosh. I remember that year. Barely. How old was you? Um, You know, I don't remember. I just remember. You were eight. I was nine. Nine. Eight and nine. Depends on the time. In June, you were nine. In June, you were nine. There we go. I was nine years old. What was I doing at nine years old? I was drawing pictures of dinosaurs when I should have been paying attention to my math class. Oh, it's the same as now. Yes, it did. <laughs> Very little has changed. Okay. And I was negative two, so. Uh... Cheers! <laughs> so we are going to dive right into this episode uh, with Heaven Can Wait is yes. the movie that we watched, which if you think that Hollywood has just now lost their will to make new stuff. Nope. It was happening back in 1978. It's always happened. It's a remake of a 1943 film, also called Heaven Can Wait, that neither of us has seen. I was called Here Comes Mr. Jordan. No, it says it's called Heaven Can Wait on IMDb. They're wrong. Oh. Oh, yeah, this is not the... Here Comes Mr. Jordan was a, a film, I guess it's 1941, and then there was a recent remake with Chris Rock, which went nowhere. That's true. Was it also called Heaven Can Wait? I don't think so. I think it was called something else. I'm looking up there. So there's a 1943 Gene Tierney <clears throat> Don Amici film called oh, Heaven right. Can Wait. Okay. But I guess maybe that's not the movie that shares its DNA with this. Right. It's just got the same name. So this is a remake of a movie with a different name, but it is also the second movie of this name that was made. So really, there's nothing new about so it. Warren I Beatty really just can't follow what you said because, as I said, I was drawing dinosaurs and I was supposed <laughs> to be paying attention to math. So when you got second, third, first, there second, was I got no lost. math in there. there was Numbers math in there. doesn't mean math. Yes. Exactly what math means. Okay, so I guess Here Comes Mr. Jordan Mm -hmm. is the name of the movie, and I just presumed that the other movie called Heaven Can Wait was the previous version of this. I don't know what could make me think. And there was, I think, a sequel to Here Comes Mr. Jordan, too. Down to Earth is the 2001 Chris Rock version. This is like the Omega Man. So many versions of it. One with yes, okay, people. so Down to Earth was the sequel to Here Comes Mr. Jordan, and there was another Down to Earth that was the one that Chris Rock was about that 
was a remake of right. Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Yeah. Y'all, this is real incestuous. It's very confusing. I don't know why. Anyways, so the basic premise of the film is a man dies prematurely, or is a man's soul is removed from his body prematurely and has to go into a different body for a little while. Right. Or forever, actually, because his body ends up getting cremated. Whoops. This movie was directed by Warren Beatty. Is it his first no, no. directing? Mm-mm. No, he directed lots of stuff. Oh, yeah, but he was so young already in this. He was like 90% jawline in this movie. Uh, and he actually opens his mouth to speak several times in this film. I saw it myself. Oh, does he not do that anymore? He does a lot of sort of teeth-gritting kind of thing. He was so sort of innocent and guileless in this movie. Right. Well, so he plays a football player for the quarterback. This the, is the first thing he ever right. directed. Well, I'm mistaken. Snaps. It happens sometimes. That's what I get for not paying attention to that. Class. He has directed six movies. Uh-oh, it's a number. Mm. This was the first one. And then he directed Reds, Dick Tracy, Bullworth, and then a... Dick Tracy TV movie special, which barely counts, and a movie called Rules Don't Apply in 2016. Wow. Which I've I'm never thinking heard that of. filmography of Dick Tracy kind of stands out for some reason. Well, that was a weird movie. Anywho, so in this movie he plays... A football player. A football player and named Joe Pendleton. Right, and he is trying to quarterback for the Super Bowl. Yes, he is a quarterback for the Rams. Uh-huh. And they're and this film features actual players, too. Yes. There are some football player-looking motherfuckers in this movie. Very and then large it turns people. out it's because they were football players. <laughs> and you start, you see him, and he is a very hard worker. Like when, What I noticed right away was this person both plays sports professionally and has an instrument hobby. Those are both things that take a very long time. But then you find out he doesn't play the instrument super good. No, not at all. <laughs> he plays the soprano saxophone like a real Kenny G. I'm sure that's what he was going for. Mm-hmm. One thing that you should know, being that, well, this is a remake. This is the genre... Screwball comedy. Yes. And screwball comedy is a mostly lost art. It's being kind of resurrected by the Coen brothers. Yeah, yeah. For films like Hail Caesar and Brother Where Art Thou. It starts out with a situation that's impossible to begin with. Right. It, we're not in the real world. We're not in the real, not real world. We're not even in any kind of theological construct. This is a heaven which is essentially an endless bank of clouds and an airplane that takes you somewhere. Looks like Thule Fog and a UFO. Right. And... <laughs> There is the chance that your guardian angel may be grossly incompetent. He made a mistake and then gets super mad that right. his mistake is called out. <laughs> it's just like, uh, dude. And he has a supervisor who is played by perhaps the actual voice of God, James Mason. James Mason. Eddie Izzard says that he is the voice of God. And he plays Mr. Jordan, who is in charge of making sure that people are properly transferred into their proper afterlife. Right. And since Joe is such a guileless, friendly, affable guy, he automatically is going to go to heaven. So, But we should start, we should say a little mm. bit more about Joe, because Joe has worked very hard, apparently, to get himself back into shape. I don't know if well, he's he had been injury. injured. Okay. Yes, we talk about his knee injury a lot in the first scene. Oh, okay. I missed a lot of that. I think I was Because we were talking into their breath. Else. This is an old school of, uh, of line delivery. Jack Warden and Dolph. Uh, is Dolph sweet? And a couple of the other character actors who are just sort of mumbling about how he's recovering. And he has competition in another quarterback. Yeah. Who's, uh, you know, doesn't need the recovery time, but Joe's working very hard and drinking disgusting oh. things. 
uh, liver and whey shakes right. with spinach mold. Ugh. And he's trying to get into good. shape to quarterback for, again, the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. That's his life stream. And he is on a bicycle ride, mm-hmm. and he drives into a tunnel, and then an asshole in a van is trying to pass a camper through the tunnel, and you hear a big crash, and then Joe is up in the clouds with Buck Henry, his escort. Okay, so Buck Henry, who was... Probably most famous, as I remember him as a kid, for hosting Saturday Night Live 12 times. Between 1976 and 1980, he wrote The Graduate. He appeared in 40 films. So he's had a very long career, but he might not be the one person you remember. He's part of ensemble cast a lot. But he's a writer-director and and a very, very funny person. Some of the characters he did in Saturday Night Live were kind of problematic. I remember one. He played one of his characters was the child-molesting uncle that everyone's trying to avoid having as a babysitter. But as... At least as far as the guy who wrote The Graduate and went on to write and grip doctor any number of films and making 40 Did he really appearances. direct it? He co-directed this? Yeah, apparently, okay. because it was, as you mentioned, his first time directing Warren Beatty. So he had someone behind right. him to help guide him like through the, the technical process. And he had a family that was in the movies for a long time, Buck Henry did. So he's been cremated, mm-hmm. and uh, you presume that he has been killed. Right. And he's like, no, 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 this has been a mistake. So he's like... No, wait, no. You presume he's been killed, and he's actually just dead. He hasn't been killed. No, yes, he hasn't been killed. So James Mason says, you know, after Joe is like, no, it's a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm just going to do some push-ups until you guys figure out how to get me back down, and it's totally fine. And uh, so James Mason says, well, check when he's supposed to get here. And the escort or the angel... It's like, what do you mean? I didn't make a mistake. And he says something to the... What is the line? It's like a person's probability of being right is greatly enhanced by the number of people trying to prove him wrong or something like that. So he has them read out this Joe's supposed arrival date and it's it's a date in 2025. Guess what? It is not. 2025. 2025. (laughs) So then they're like, oh, we got to put you back in your body. And they go down. They're like... Now, Buck Henry's playing the angel who pulled him out prematurely. Yes, and he is? The co-director of the film. Oh. And he also is um, a very famous comedy writer. He did ah. a lot of great stuff. And his character in this film is really kind of irritating because he refuses to believe he made a mistake. He's so buttoned up. It's not even that he refuses to believe that he made a mistake because he does admit, like, well, I pulled him out of his body before he got struck. Because I didn't want him to have to go through that. It was clear that he was going to be hit by this truck or this van. Mm -hmm. So I pulled him out to spare him that. And then, you know, turns out Joe was an athlete, like a Super Bowl level athlete. And he would have been able to veer and get out of the way. So he wasn't due to die. But his soul got snatched from his body. The other thing that I really like about Joe's soul is it comes with that saxophone. Right. Like every time he's a soul he again, he, the saxophone just He's appears. in the same sweatsuit and... Yes, and a gray sweatsuit, carrying. and he's got his uh, right. soprano saxophone. And uh, they go back down to try and put him back in his body, and there's the memorial service, and then they see that, oh, his body has been cremated. Whoops. I guess not. So now they're like, we'll find you a new body. Somebody who's about to die, who is athletic, because he's like, I still, I'm, I'm gonna 
be a Super Bowl, or I'm going to be a Super Bowl quarterback, so you need to give me a body that will be able to do that. So we see, like, various, like, race car drivers, and we see trapeze artists, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, two shorts, not good enough, this, that, and the other. Looking for an athletic body. Right, because he's still obsessed with the idea that he's still going to play the Super Bowl. Yes, it's what he's meant to do. They end up at well, they find a loner, state. right? Uh, of a uh, Mr. Farms Farnsworth. What's Farnsworth. his first name? Lou. Is it Lou? I can't remember now. It's something with an L. Mr. Farnsworth is a, a being presently being murdered by his wife and his secretary, who's a man, male secretary who are having an affair. That's Charles Grodin and Diane Cannon with the biggest, floofiest, poofiest hair. She, her hair is almost as as large as her face. It's a whole separate character it's to itself. It's bananas. And while he is in his bath having been poisoned, somebody else shows up. Who is it? It's Betty Logan, played by Julie Christie. Julie Christie. And she is mad at Farnsworth and is like, you're going to kill the entirety of this little British town called Pegglesh- Pegglesham? Pegglesham, I think. Pegglesham. So, yeah. And he hears her sort of begging the secretary to let her him talk or let her talk to Mr. Farnsworth. The secretary presumes that Mr. Farnsworth is dead in the tub upstairs. Right. And Joe is overhearing this pleading. He is struck by her. Like he like falls in love with her instantly. Right. And it's like someone should help her. And James Mason and Buck Henry are like, well, I mean, you could take this body temporarily. It's sort of like when you go to a like get your car repaired, right? And they give you another a car temporarily. Hold it. Yeah, you can use so, this, but you'll get yours back. I think that Mr. Jordan, in an attempt to make up for the fact that his employee, or guess he's not getting paid, did this to Joe. Gives are you him, are you suggesting that angels are slaves? I'm suggesting that angels don't get paid for their work. I think they might get paid in something. Because otherwise they're slaves, and that's not good. But he winds up getting a loader of a uh, Leo. Uh, Leo, not Lou. Yes, I guess Leo Farnsworth. very, very, very rich and extremely eccentric. Yes, not crazy. Eccentric. Eccentric because he's rich. He's too rich to be crazy, mm-hmm. so he's merely eccentric. He likes to dress up. Right. Like in actual ass costumes, like naval admiral costumes right. for dinner. But they're not t- particular to any any, any plays, role, maybe He dresses exists. in polo outfits to play croquet. Right. Which was hilarious to me because you had mentioned that and I was like, I didn't even, I had forgotten that croquet was a different game than polo. Right. Like, it didn't occur <laughs> well, to me that they the And the other one doesn't. And he will ask, and Joe remembers everything. Right. So he gets put into this body, and we only ever see him as Warren Beatty mm-hmm. uh, through the whole movie. It's right. just him. We, so I, that's who plays Leo Farnsworth, as far as we're concerned. And he, well, which is a point they bring up. It's like he asked Mr. Jordan at first, "Are they? Am I going to be able to convince them that I'm this person?" Yeah. And, and he like, points you out, sound well, and to them, like you him. sound and look exactly like him. But that is a plot point that's not glossed over. He no. is terrified at first of being found out to be somebody Yeah, else. he thinks he has to, like, say a weird, or talk mm. in a weird tone or something. But right. he doesn't. He can just be him. Although his mannerisms might give them away. Right. But and, this and dude it, is very eccentric. So they right. were just like, he doesn't like hats anymore. When they were <laughs> later when they're asked, did he, was he acting weird? 
so now he's in this body of this rich man. Mm-hmm. He says, we're not going to build this factory that's going to destroy this whole town. And it was a power plant, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, uh, maybe. A lot or a refinery or right. a... It's unclear. Like, apparently, this company does literally everything. Right. Uh, right. And so they're like, well, all the decisions will be made on Thursday at the board meeting. And so... He tells James Mason, I guess you have to come back for me after Thursday, after the board meeting on Thursday. And so he's like living his best life, playing croquet, eating dinners, not being poisoned. And meanwhile, his wife has a separate room and uh-huh. is sleeping every night. Now with you should Charles describe Rowe. this room. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it It has a matching fabric and wallpaper motif that is a peach color that is then heavily covered in florals, small florals. No, what's fascinating... And it's the walls, right. the bed, right. the headboard... The drapery. The drapery. The upholstery. Yes, everything. Everything is, is the exact this, same pattern. This crazy pattern. I remember turning, it to, turning to you and saying, how does she find the door? Because yeah, it no, all looks The back like, of the door matches right. everything. Yeah, it's... It's uh, a very bizarre, weird room. And the household is so eccentric that she sleeps with the secretary apparently every night. Every night. He just sleeps... There, he just lives in that room with her, but right. nobody knows because well, later when he knocks on the door, mm-hmm. when when Leo knocks on the door or Joe, it's hard to tell what when Warren Beatty knocks on right, the door, he hides. So it's not supposed to be known that now. Of course, Joe knows that they're having an affair and that they have poisoned this right, man. Right, because Mr. Jordan has told him this. Well, they saw him dead in the bathtub. Right. They were there because his he was dying. And yeah, Mr. Jordan said he's we're in the middle of a murder. <laughs> like that's what happened. And the fact that Mr. Jordan seems to take an interest when people are arguing is almost as if he's there's a great air of these are mortals. Look how stupid they are. Right. <laughs> and I'm a, sure there's not a lot of bickering. Right. In so he gets to see it. Purgatory or wherever it is that he the way station that he runs to get people to heaven or. I want to see exactly what kind of vehicle they take to go to hell. I imagine Maybe a great glass-bottom no elevator. I believe there's That no would hell. be fun. Charles Grodin in this looked like half of himself. Right. He was very slight with so much hair and eyebrow. Yeah, which is the amazing. The same amount of hair and eyebrow as in the Beethoven movies. Right. But half of the which person. Which is so funny. I've never seen the Beethoven movies. I just remember I haven't that either. I just know he, he, he yells a, a lot on them. He had a talk show for a while. That seems weird. Um... He doesn't seem like a person who likes people. He doesn't. And that was kind of the <laughs> gag of the talk show. And he brought up that, you know, that these characters he plays are really sort of unpleasant and it sort of tapped into his personality. He played a wealthy industrialist in the movie King Kong in 1976. Mm-hmm. And in the film, after he rapes the environment and brings Kong to New York, Kong steps on him. Well, in the original film, it steps over him and he's sitting there cowering in this, you know, and the preview audience hated him and his character so much so that they demanded had that it got reshot where this foot grinds him into the ground. Wow, that's so, a lot of hate. Right, that was really funny. No, we want to see King Kong kill him. Wow, so. So Joe is just sort of doofing his way around. They, he gets to the Thursday... Well, but wait, there's something that happens before that, which is... Apparently, I believe it happens before that when he convinces his old trainer, Max Corkle. No, it's after that. That's after? Because he thinks he's out after uh-huh. Thursday. Okay. He just thinks that he's going to be 
Well, but no, he wants to stay because he believes he can bring Leo Farnsworth into shape. Right, but he does. I don't think he talks to them mm-hmm. until after the Thursday meeting because he says you got to come back and pick me up after mm-hmm. Thursday because he knows he has to stay at least that long to, to save, save Peglesham. Uh, and dolphins, apparently. Yes. So the the boardroom scene is hilarious. So he it's shows really, up at the boardroom. That's an exhibition of how when screwball comedy works. Works. So he there's a bunch of um, reporters waiting for him, and he's like, "Come into the boardroom. We'll be transparent." And you know, the board is like, right. "Uh, no, let's not do that." But you know, they're in now, and the big boss says that it's fine. He talk like he gives a football speech. It's about, well, we don't want to just win now. Right. We want to win everything. We want to stick around forever. So we're going to do things right. Let the other people, you know, do the polluting and build in the bad places. And, you know, there's this thing where they're getting letters because their dolphins are dying because of their tuna netting. Right. Now, I'm sure that when this film was made, it seemed really strange or far-fetched to have a company with its finger in every single pie. I don't know that it did, because I think that's always been the case. so common now. Like, this is, it's very I, funny. When you think of the Dutch East India Company. Well, that's true. That's one of the oldest companies in Causing political Europe, unrest right? And, and they right. had their fingers in everything. So, but one of the, one of his lines is, um, he says, well, we don't care how much something costs. We uh-huh. care how much it makes. And if you have to raise the cost, you just build that into the selling of the thing. Wouldn't you pay an extra penny to save a fish that thinks? <laughs> so. Well, I'm mean, forgetting the other line that was really well written, where the guy, the uh, board member is defending why you have to kill dolphins. And something like, we net tuna, and when we net tuna, we're forced to kill porpoises. Right. And I'm just like, oh, really? Well, Cut so to your head, forced Joe to kill is, them? again, not quite so bright. He actually believes that porpoise is the name of one of the yeah, uh, we people have suing a, him. Yeah, we have a lawsuit here from someone named Porpoise. Right. <laughs> and they're like, that's not what that, what that is. Now, I'll, I'll add that maybe something that makes a little more sense in the original film, and that would be, is uh, that in the first film, he's not a, a football player, he's a boxer. Okay. So he's kind of punchy in the first movie, and that's why apparently he says you a mean lot of... dumb? No. He's, <laughs> he's been hit in the head too many times, and so he makes weird connections between things. He's kind of a pug. And so literally what I just said. Well, I know, but uh, dumb would be an unkind word D- for something. Damaged. Damaged, there we go. He suffered he's some slight brain damage. Got some, yeah. Well, here's the thing about football Well, players. there you go, okay. It turns out, mm-hmm. same. Uh, and so, yeah, after the board meeting, he realizes that he wants to stick around. Why? Because A, Leo's not in bad shape, and if he knows about rehab... He he can get this body in shape, and too. he's really really on point about rehab. Yeah, he really is because he rehabilitated after his 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 own injury, right? So so he thinks that he can get this body into football shape, and he loves this woman. Mm-hmm. She knows him in this body. He wants to keep this body, and they're like, I mean, okay, that's fu- that's fine, right? And so for a little while, he get he hires Max Corkle the trainer for the Rams to mm-hmm. come train him personally. But he does tell Max. He informs him who he is. Yes. He which lets, is a really funny scene in itself. He, he lets Max in on the secret and Max thinks that 
this eccentric millionaire has, or billionaire has like lost his mind. Right. And it's like, um, because his plan is, I'm going, you're going to make me be right. in Super shape to quarterback the Super Bowl. And Max is like, no team wants a crazy trainer. And I'd be a crazy trainer if I suggested to them that you should be the, the quarterback. And it, and then he ends up saying basically the things that he heard him say at his grave. Mm-hmm. And so he understands uh-huh. this is Joe. Right. Plus, there's something in the eyes. Like right. there's some there's a also there's he a, fixes a crick in his neck that seems to be fixed by nobody but that's Joe. That's true. He does some sort of weird in a way that makes it manipulation. Look like he's yes. really gonna murder. And him. he says that to him too. I get terrified every time you do that because it looks like you're gonna break my neck. Yeah. Right. Uh, so Max believes that it's Joe, uh-huh. and wants to help him because they were very close. Uh, they were very good friends and very close, and so he starts training with the the various butlers. And maids. And yeah, I have to say the butlers, the, the staff of this house are very funny. They're very funny. There's also so many of them. Right. Like, there's never a scene where there are just, unless it's in Mrs. Farnsworth's bedroom, mm-hmm. where there are the, the, the lords and ladies of right. the house and no staff. Right. Like, there's a butler or a maid somewhere all, all, all of the time. See, because even as a kid, this would drive me crazy. All right, in a slight aside, you watch a film like Dracula, okay? Welcome to my castle. He spreads his arms this way. And there's this enormous castle, enormous castle, and no one is attending to him. I'm going, how does he run this place? Well, the fact that he answered his own door is weird. Right. There's That's just... the giveaway where it's like, mm, you live in two rooms and right. nothing else is, everything but, else is covered in cobwebs and yuck. Because I, you know, I've, I've seen Downton Abbey. I know how many people it takes to run a house, so much less a people. castle. So I, I appreciate the fact that there's a full staff. They don't do much, although, again, this is a very eccentric household because apparently... A flag has to be raised at the every beginning. night. <laughs> at yes, the end of and the day. then lowered, and then a cannon is shot off. <laughs> right, which is literally the first thing I would do. Is we're not with the cannon anymore. And Diane Cannon, by the way, Diane Cannon. Speaking yes, of, I know. Speaking right. of cannons, does a great job of playing a woman who is so nervous that she has murdered him and that her plans keep failing. Oh my god, she's so funny that she turns into a screaming maniac. Oh, and maniac! Every and time Gordon has to cover for her. <laughs> right, because. Right at the very beginning, when he comes downstairs in his polo outfit, she is expecting him to be dead. Right, exactly. And so when she sees him, she screams. And then Charles Grogan puts his hand over her mouth and, like, drags her out of the room. And then comes back and says, apologies, she saw a mouse. And they're, like, in here? And she goes, no, before. But sh- she revisits it? <laughs> right. <It's>, uh, <laughs> like she's been like sent she into just... permanent trauma by a mouse. Yes, every once in a while, <laughs> right. she'll, she'll, she'll be, and I'm not using this term out of context because this is what they meant, she'll be triggered in some way and right. will have some sort it's of... hysterical, and she's trying to douse it with alcohol all the time. All the time. Oh, and she's so drinking there's a, constantly. a constant bit of business in the film where she's trying to drink and Charles Gordon's trying to get it away from her because I think he's worried that she's going to make some sort of horrible confession right. if she gets modeling. Because <laughs> guess what? She will. And at one point she tells him, stop putting your hand over my mouth. This is not... Yes. Yeah, she's, and then he says, you used to like it. So right? they have I don't it. know what they're into. I think they got to improvise some of their dialogue because it becomes really funny yeah. um, over the course of the film, their relationship. 
So he's working out mm-hmm. with the the staff, right? Getting himself into shape, and his wife and his secretary. I don't know why he didn't fire him. Right. Why didn't he fire him and kick his wife to the curb? He knows that they're like murderers. They try and kill him again. Right. He's he goes the world's heaviest like, bed canopy or something. So weird. <laughs> and he throws his jacket onto the bed, and this right. giant thing comes down and crushes right. the bed. And of course, he's not in it. So they hear that and they're like, he's dead. Oh, this is right. Because he goes into her room one night mm-hmm. and he hi- Charles Grodin hides behind the curtain and she's like, yes. And he's, he just pokes his head in just like super nice. Hey, we don't love each other. So let's get a divorce, huh? And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, let's, let's just get a divorce and I'll see you tomorrow or whatever. And then he goes and walks away. Oh, and then he comes back and he goes, oh, Tony, who is his... Right. Or Mr. Abbott, who's his secretary. Mr. Abbott, uh, I need you to remind me of something tomorrow. Uh, did you get that? And he just waits, and then just from behind the curtain, he just says, yes, sir. <laughs> like, we know. Everyone knows. Right. Well, I don't know if everyone knows, but Joe I'm knows. I'm sure they all know. The servants have also, there's a very funny bit of business he does where uh, the only time he can get privacy speaking to the angels in his house is running into the broom closet. The broom closet, because there's and always some. Everywhere right. he goes into, there's always a servant. There's there. somebody doing a thing. So then he winds up going to the broom closet. So now they're um, they go and knock on, on the broom closet door, and they just this. hear him talking to himself because no one right. can see Mr. the Jordan. angels. Well, and the the other funny bit of business is they they apparently play along with him a lot. Yeah, I think that this is a group of people who. <sighs> go along to get along, and right. he's not bad to them. And I don't know if Leo Farnsworth was bad to them. It, it doesn't seem, like, seem it, no. like he was. And so they're just like, we're basically paid to do right. what he wants, and what he wants isn't bad. Egregious, it's not it's harmful. It's weird, right. but it's not so bad. So when he starts you know, having them you know, uh, practice or get into a shape with them, he, he doesn't, they don't seem to see it. They it's, don't see it as bad, just and they just go along to get, get along, along yeah. with Right. And then it turns out what he what his plan is that he buys the Rams and says that he's going to quarterback for them. And he does say, let mm-hmm. me come to a practice. If I'm not up to the job, right. then I won't take That's it. That's what I appreciate. As weird as the film is and as strange as the premise is, it's not so loony that there aren't little details like that that would make sense. Yeah. Where he says something like, well, just let me play it. You guys play like it's the actual Super Bowl. Yeah. And if I can survive this, then you'll consider then you'll, Yeah. And and the way that it works is the, the team is told he's going to come to practice this Wednesday afternoon mm-hmm. and we're going to scrimmage. And then he, as the owner and the head coach, will decide together whether or not he should be a thing. Right. And at the beginning of it, you see the old owner and he's like crying. He's like, that, ro- that Cook Farmsworth tricked me to get my, my team. And, and his buddy is like, what do you do? And he says... I asked for $67 million, and he said, okay. <laughs> that was it. He didn't do anything. And then you find out later that the team's book value is like $16 million, right. so he way overpaid. But you can't say no to him now. That, no, that's no, exactly. You're stuck. So, yeah, no, exactly. I'm going to ask for triple the price, and you're right. going to say yes? Well, I'm getting triple my money then. That right. sounds great to me. And he goes, and everybody there is like, we're going to take this dude out. Like, who the fuck does this guy think that he is? (laughs) Charles Grodin still trying to kill this dude is 
you know, says to one of the black players, oh, you're very impressive. Please don't let any of Mr. Farnsworth's racial comments upset you. Dick move, but the smartest murder attempt he makes the entire film. Yeah, well, until he, until later. But yeah, that was probably the smartest move that he made. Because he just makes bad choices the whole way through. So they keep taking him down. They keep going offsides and tackling the passer. And I'm like, you guys can't, like, that's, if you did this at the Super Bowl, y'all would end up all sitting on the sidelines because right. this is not legal football play. And and finally, after they take him down, like, the fourth time, he's like, look, I get it. Let me run one pass. If, if I don't belong here, mm-hmm. I'll go. And they let him run the pass. And he's a good quarterback like he makes a ton of passes mm. and they're just you just hear them all 80 yard so it's weird so you hear all the football noises and then all the sound will drop out and then a line will just be said <laughs> now this is something that you'll get used to when you're watching this film there's a lot of strange adr work in the it. sound in it is the, really the, odd. the scene where they're in heaven is something i pointed out to you at the time is that i'm imagining the set is enormous and empty mm-hmm. Because all you see is these this bank of fog and the, the and airplane. And then a plane, yeah. So I assume they were like in a hangar. <laughs> it could be. Um, and what happens is that, so all their lines are obviously dubbed because if not, it was going to just echo all over the place. This is the way that films were made once upon a time. So yes, there is this strange yeah. like utter silence and someone says a line and then we're back to the football. Back to the sound, the yeah. background noises. So you just start hearing them say things like, no, it looks like we got a rich quarterback. Right. <laughs> like, so they sort of get get on board with him. So then he's gonna he's gonna be he's gonna play yeah, in the Super Bowl, it. and so then he, he's having like he has some meetings with like ecologist groups. Yeah. That's to get Julie Christie back over. Hey, how are you? He takes her for a date at one point, and he's so flustered that mm-hmm. he ends up taking her to like a drive-through right. in the back seat of a driven car, and she's like, uh, "Are you ashamed to be seen with me?" And he's like, "I thought you'd be ashamed to see be seen with me. I don't know what I'm doing." And no, I don't normally eat this food. I eat liver and whey milkshakes. <laughs> milkshakes? Just shakes. I guess it's not a, milk. Yeah, I just... <laughs> I, it's wrong. I tried not to think about it while I was watching And the so they're like falling in love and she makes a wish. He can do one card trick or a coin trick too. He can make a coin disappear and then pull it from behind your ear. So he <sighs> does that to her. Um, and she makes a wish in the well, and then James Mason shows up, and he's like, oh, well, you got to go, and I'm going to go talk to him. And he's like, what do you want? Like, I've got my new body, I've got my new life, I'm all set, I'm good. And there, and James Mason's like, uh, so you can't have this body anymore. And Joe is like, no, 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 it's, I'm good. <laughs> like, we've, He wants fine. to keep the loner. I want to keep the loner. I like this life. I like this lady. I'm going to play in the Super Bowl. Mm. Everything's great. And James Mason's like, um, but no. Right. And he kind of huffs away. And then as the cannon is going off that evening for the lowering of the flag, Mm -hmm. Charles Grodin is up in Mrs. Farnsworth's room with a shotgun or a rifle. Like a long-range rifle. rifle. The barrel is almost as long as he is. And when the cannon goes off, he fires and he shoots Farnsworth. Who falls headfirst into the well. well. wishing well. And then we see Warren Beatty crawl out in his sweats with with his saxophone. And that is why he could not. That was his 
Farnsworth was not going to escape being murdered by these people. Once again, why didn't he have them arrested? Like, you have double proof that they have tried to kill you twice. Why are they still living in your house? And she had signed a prenup, so she, I think she it was all because right. she wanted the money. Also, at this point, you've also heard that the the um, company's ta- uh, stock is tanking. It was like 54, and now it's like 14, because he's, you know, being a good guy. And Environmentally responsible. Allowed and to be a right. good guy as the head of a company. <clears throat> Turns out, capitalism bad. Uh, but that's sort of all background minutia stuff. Right. And so then they're like, we're going to find you another body. And he's like, I'm supposed to be at the Super Bowl. <laughs> like, what the fuck? And then there's a police investigation. Um, Jack Warden goes to the police. Uh, Max, mm. the trainer, goes to the police. And he's like, no, 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 no. Because he just disappears. Nobody knows where he right. goes. Because he they falls head first down body. the well. So they're asking everybody questions, and the police investigator is like... Yeah, the police, for, for, for those of you who are old enough, Vincent Gardenia, who was a character actor who... This was his specialty, playing really loud, dim-witted guys. I think the, the high point of his career was in Moonlighting. Excuse me, not Moonlighting. Uh, Moonstruck. With Cher. Oh, with Cher, yeah. Where he plays the ultimate dim-witted, loud-mouthed, you know, arrogant patriarch of a family. He's very good Interesting. at this. Interesting, yeah, I didn't recognize him. It's almost like a shtick that he did in a lot of movies, and this one he's hysterical. He's, yes. Because they're doing kind of a parody of the detective film where he summons all the suspects. Yes, in the room everybody together. gets to the to the gets mansion. brought to the mansion, including Julie Christie, the love interest, and his wife and her lover mm-hmm. and, and the, all of the butlers and right. maids and everything. And, and instead of conducting an investigation like you would see in one of those Sherlock Holmes or uh, Perry Mason, one of those kind of forties films. He instead conducts the most incompetent investigation oh, so of all time. So he's talking to the butlers who talk about, you know, their cocoa schedule. And the one thing that they say that he'd been acting different because of was that he's, he started to dislike hats. Because the, apparently this man... Had a giant collection of eccentric hats. Huge hats. He would, like, including, like, big feathered plumage with his admiral's outfits at right. dinner. Like, and then he was like, I don't want to wear hats anymore. Joe was like, I'm not. I don't want to, like, I don't want to. And then every person who talked after that was asked about the hat. Right, as if that was the one clue that's, the that's going to unravel the case you, for him. You found the crux of <laughs> right. the case. It's not, though. So, so. it's a very well-written parody of that kind yeah. of scene. Though. And um, Max knows that the other two tried to kill him twice because Joe told him that. Right, exactly. Once again, why the police were never informed of this, I don't understand. Like, I guess Joe just doesn't really want to rock the boat, but, like, rock this particular boat. Well, Joe, again, probably just saw it as his loner body, so he didn't care until it started getting in his way. But then he was like, well, I'm going to get a divorce from this woman, and I'm going to continue to hire this dude and have them around all the time? What? Why? It doesn't make sense. That That piece doesn't doesn't make sense. sense. Um, and I wish that they could have just had one conversation like, you can't make these changes because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Make something up. But to have no thought given to it seems a little weird. And then, they're, in the background, the Super Bowl is on. And, and, the, and Julie Christie is watching it. She's the only one watching it. And the detectives it. actually at some point start watching the Super Bowl and yeah. ignoring the, their chief, Wondergon, going on about, now what was his position on, on hats? hats? 
Yeah. And when Diane Cannon begins manipulating the situation to her advantage. Oh, yeah. Because Julie Christie, he had basically proposed to Julie Christie. He said, mm. I'm getting a divorce from my wife and I want you to marry me. Mm. Before they even smooched. Right. Because they only smooched Because it was true time. love. True love doesn't require sex. Mm, no, but maybe some I don't believe that, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what we've learned in the movies. So she's like, yeah, he had, he had proposed to me. And... That, yeah, Diane Cannon, his wife, was like, we've never been happier. I don't, I mean, he's a man, and so, yeah, he's going to tell you whatever right. he, he has to tell you to get where he wants to get with you. And that's when you really begin to not like her, because she's... I didn't like her I when mean, she screamed at the mouse. I did. <laughs> not that you don't like her, but she is kind of, You see how manipulative she is at that point. Yes. Because up until then, she's not being particularly villainous. She's just sort of pathetic and and weird. Yeah. And then you see that, oh, no, no, you can understand exactly how she wheedled her way into this house and into people's confidences by being very convincing at lying. Though. Yes. Uh, especially, I feel very sorry for Mr. Farnsworth, who I think not being with us all the time, so to speak, probably was this, she was very convincing to him. Yeah. Yeah. So... We're we're hearing pieces of the football game. It's the fourth quarter. It's twenty four twenty four, and the quarterback gets sacked. Mr. Jarrett. Yeah, Thomas the, Jarrett. Who was the rival? Mm, yeah. Sort of rival, so friendly rival. Second string of Joe mm-hmm. when Joe was playing, and he's playing well now. Mm-hmm. And Joe always, you know, never had a problem with him. They said, you know, this is your. Enemy, and he was like, "That's not my enemy. The other right, team the other is my team, enemy." Right. <laughs> and so, because Joe is just such a decent guy, he yeah. doesn't see it that way. So Max and Betty are looking at the screen, and they're mm. watching. Like he's been wheeled off the. Jared has the quarterback. Jared has been wheeled out off hit. of the field. Took a very hard hit, uh-huh. and then he like jumps up and gets back in the game, and like nothing happened. And they uh-huh. are both like, Max is like, "That's Joe." Right. That's definitely, like, that's 100% that's Joe. That's, like, mm-hmm. something happened, he died, right. and Joe has gotten put into his body. Betty doesn't know that yet, but she's, like, something, like, that's weird. Right. And Max leaves. He's just like, I'm out. And the police are like, you can't leave. We're doing an investigation. He's like, if you want to arrest me, go for it, but I got, I'm, There's something that I should have mentioned earlier, which is when he did propose to Julie Christie, he was aware that something would happen to him. And he says, if you ever see the look on my face and somebody else, the look in my eyes, because yeah, she goes on about that. Yeah, the, how your right. eyes are different than anything else. And that's how he, she knew he was right. good. So th- that becomes He doesn't important know point. anything's going to happen to him at that point. I think no. he's just covering his face. Well, because he's also because seen he's two murder attempts. In, so, yes, yeah. he's not in his body now. So, But, um, the, but what is important about that scene is that's the same scene where he proposes to her. So yes. she's aware of the fact that something might happen something to him. Something might happen. Which is what she tries to tip the police off to. So Max rushes to the the football game. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we, we're hearing it's a sudden death overtime, which I'm pretty sure is not what happens in the Super Bowl, but whatever. I'm, it's fine. And I also don't think the Rams are going to the Super Bowl ever. So <laughs> he makes a throw uh, and it gets fumbled, but it's in a situation where he can scoop it and he scoops it and he runs one to the end zone. Ooh, he scored the winning goal, and we're done, and we win, and we win the Super Bowl. And then we're in the... <laughs> I, was, I was appreciating your dance. <laughs> and we're in the locker room celebrating, and we see that it is Joe. Right. Because we, we only ever see Joe as Joe. And Max comes in and is like, it's you, right? And he's like, yeah, it's me. At the same time, he's being interviewed, 
and he sees James Mason, and James Mason's like, this is it now. This is, this is your destiny. You're going to be Thomas Jarrett. Uh-huh. When I fade away, you're not going to remember any of this. This right. is just going to be your life, and you're going to live it and out, this and you're going to be happy. To be honest, this is what he wanted from the beginning. Yes. And so, yeah, it's not like he got cheated. They actually did right by him, finally. Yes. They sorted things out. But he's like, what do you mean I won't remember? Because what that means is he won't remember uh-huh. Betty. Right. Which is the only piece that would be missing, right? Right. And so he's just like, this is it. This is your destiny. Live long, be happy, and I'll see you when you get up to my, you know, my way station. And he sort of fades away in a very Star Trek-y fade away situation. And he sort of has this blank look on his face. And then he showers. And as he's coming out of of the shower, Max is there. Everybody else is sort of... And this scene actually made me a little bit sad. It's sad. I, I felt bad. Um, so he comes out of the shower, he's getting dressed, everybody else has gone off to a party and he's going to head there after, and Max is like, oh, play this for, or, uh, Max has his, uh, horn, and, uh, Joe says, oh, I didn't know you played that, and Max is like, oh, shut up, like, don't, don't mess with me, you should play something for me, and he's like, what are you talking about, and he doesn't have right. any recollection, he's Tom now, he's not Joe anymore. Although we do still see Warren Beatty, so sort of it sort of settles in that he doesn't remember. Like Max understands that he doesn't. He's not jo- like Joe is gone. Right, which is really sad because that was that one of the cores of this movie is their friendship. Yeah, and how he makes this leap of faith to believe in him. So yeah. it, you, uh, and, and again, Jack Warden is a great character actor. I've yeah. seen him play horrible parts where he's like it's, but it's really funny watching him play this sort of crusty, friendly. And it really is sort of sad watching him sit there and just come to the realization that he's finally lost his friend who, despite the fact that he keeps dying, keeps right, popping keeps up. coming back. Right. It's like the good version of Fallen. Right. I started singing Time is on Your Side at one point. I was just like, ugh, how this many bodies is, is he right. going to hop this into? This is when it breaks right. And so, meanwhile, back at the estate, one of the gardeners has like found the jacket. Right, found... In the well. And so they're like, oh, his body's in the well. Mm-hmm. So... Betty knows this, and he, she, she, she learns this, and I believe at that point Charles Grodin and Diane Cannon just turn, they on, turn each on each other. They turn on each other, right? They're just and like she did it. She I did love it. his. I'll sign a confession to say that she did yeah, it. Right. I'll <laughs> confess she did it. Oh, yeah, and so that murder, like it's it's a bullet wound isn't even found right. yet because we don't have a body, but these two are already just like it wasn't me. <laughs> It was uh, totally both of them. So they're definitely in trouble. And then Julie Christie leaves and she goes, she heads right. to the stadium to find Max. No, because the, to the let football him players, know. everyone's aware of it now because they're, they're in the locker room celebrating, saying, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? You know, yeah. To our Oh, right, because it was the owner of the right. team. So they were, and they really started to care about him, right. you know, as he they proved himself. Impressed, right. And so she's there and she... Pass, Joe's headed out to the party and uh-huh. she passes him and they stop. They're like, do I know you? I don't, do I know you? Right. And they have a little conversation and then the lights go out and he takes her hand to take her out you know, to leave because it's like like pitch black, mm. takes her out into the, onto the field and to, to show her how to get right. to the locker room because she's looking for Max. And he says something like, don't uh, be afraid. there's nothing to be afraid nothing of. Nothing to be afraid of. Which um, is... 
what Joe's like whole life right. motto was. was There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. And being that she's in utter darkness when this happens, she's not looking at the man, so she understands the voice and the tone and something yeah. and starts registering that. Because he did tell her earlier, if anything happens to me and you see this look in the eyes of somebody else, like don't a be football afraid. player. Right. Like, like, for instance, a football player. It might just be a football player. Because <laughs> right. he was very determined to be a football player. Uh, and then she, it cl- like clicks with her. Right. So, in however many movies, intrepid investigative reporter Lois Lane cannot <laughs> tell the difference. She was not letting go of Lois Lane. Between Clark Kent and Superman. Uh-huh. But this bitch understands that the soul of her lover has hopped into this football player. She's a genius and should be in charge of everything. She forever. should be uh, on the staff of the Daily Planet. It just—it was like I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> like <laughs> Lois can't see through glasses. This is a different body, right. like a totally different body. I was just like, this is ridiculous. Anyways, so he gets everything that he. Right. It's a very sweet movie. It is, and it's really funny. That's what works for it. It's genuinely sweet. It's not saccharine sweet. No, there's there's a lot of fun to it. There's a lot of, uh, like I said, screwball comedy can be something that can go really wrong. I remember seeing a film years ago with Sylvester Stallone called Oscar. I think. Oh, yes. With him and Marissa Tomei. He wears a robe through much of it. And it's just, you know, it's very much slapstick. There's a door open, somebody comes running in, does something funny, then goes running out, another door opens, and then all the characters converge at the end. And and it's just, the the pacing, there's something about it that's just off, even though the cast itself is working. And Sylvester Stallone, to his credit, works very hard to try to get it to work. But if the timing is off, it doesn't work at all. And um, I remember coming up with examples from you. It was harder to find examples that didn't date back to the 40s because this is one of Howard Hawks specialties as a filmmaker you know the rapid fire dialogue of the really goofy characters everyone seems to be an eccentric in stories like this yeah but um, what we came to was the Coen brothers are still doing it the Gilmore Girls was an example of yeah. screwball comedy and I think the farcical nature of Frasier led it right. to be and there were scenes of it him. where you know I mean and they did and, that yeah right, the doors, doors closing open, right. yeah and we watched we'll a play, play. Uh, Contra Costa Civic Theater did one. Right. Um, I don't remember which oh, yes, one. A family that makes fireworks, and there's all sorts yeah. of... Yeah. And it was a lot of slamming doors, jumping in through doors, people mistaking identity for another person, and that it really, when it works really well, it's hysterical. When it doesn't work well, it's painful to watch. But, um... Okay, let me do this joke. Sorry to disturb you, Mr. Farnsworth. Mrs. Farnsworth saw a mouse. She just saw a mouse? No, before, outside. But she relives it. <laughs> she relives it. <laughs> Which is hysterical. Yeah, there's a lot of funny stuff. There's a lot of, do I play polo? Like, he's dressed for polo. Right. And he's like, do I play polo? Not really, sir. And then later, he's like, I have a lot of the, like, what's with all of these, Naval like, themes. sailor outfits? Right. They're literally, like, right. grown-up sailor outfits. And uh, the Sisk is the name of the main butler. Right. It's like, you really love the sea. And he's like, do I sail? Not really, sir. Like, he just doesn't really And the other butler's literally snickering when he asks that question. Like, you sail? No. He's bringing extra, like, another cup of, there's two, because he has Uh hot cocoa every night, so he's definitely living his best life. And the 
Butler has put two uh-huh. cups on there after they hear him in the closet talking to no one. Right. And they're like, I noticed there's two cups. And he says, Sisk thought that if he's pretending to talk to somebody, he may want to offer them some cocoa. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's what gives you... Imp- everyone, except, for, of course, for the murders, people are generally very good-natured in this movie. Yes. And they don't... You know, there's, there's no meanness for his own sake, which is a lot of fun because a lot of... A lot of humor, I'd have to say, nowadays depends on people being really nasty to each yes. other. And instead, these are people who even are just... like the net, like and the language on this in this movie is pretty clean. Like uh-huh. I want to say this is a PG movie, but like that's the owner. Uh-huh. Um, he that's like the harshest language. He's like, he got my team. That son of a bitch right. got my team. And his buddy's like, what kind of pressure did he use? <laughs> and then it was, I asked for sixty-seven million, and he said, okay. Like, oh, that's not. That's not pressure. (laughs) I also find it um, the speech he delivers in the boardroom. It's so good, and it's it harkens when I when you're mentioning it now. So Warren Beatty, I'm not sure if you've ever seen Bullworth. I don't know if you've done it. I have not seen Bullworth. I've seen clips of Bullworth. There is a similar speech he gives at the end of that film about how to create racial harmony. Mm -hmm. That he comes up with a solution that's so eccentric you're like oh well that that might actually work uh, which is just to have all races immediately begin interbreeding with each other oh right so we end make everybody being, beige right and one then... beautiful high cheekboned beige color and then there won't be racism anymore and you're like i wonder I if mean, that would work <laughs> yes i'm sure we'll find We'd a caste system in another look way like brazilians <laughs> nothing wrong with that no i can't see that no, that doesn't look like You a, have a Hispasian baby. Right, so, so I mean, I'm, I can't see anything wrong with that, is what I mean. It's like, huh, yeah, okay, I could do with that. <laughs> that doesn't sound bad to me. Lofty ideals. Yeah, so this movie was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty short, 101 minutes, mm-hmm. and which being, is about how long you want your comedies the, to be uh, 90 yeah. to 100 minutes. Is about what you want. God, it's something that where they go on nowadays. I don't yeah, understand. Yeah. And I, you know who broke it? Ed who? Norton. Ed Norton? Here's how long a rom-com <laughs> okay. yes, I'll tell you exactly why. All right. I have a reason. Okay. Rom-coms should be 85 to 95 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Ed Norton made Keeping the Faith, and it was two hours and 26 minutes long. Good God. And now we're just chasing it. And it's too, that's, an, that's an hour too long. Right. It's an I, hour. I long. don't understand. And it feels... Uh-huh. An hour and 45 minutes so too long something because that we've, you can't. We've discussed before, right? We've discussed before how a movie used to be two films on a bill and a short subject and a cartoon and whatever else. That's what mm-hmm. you used to go to the movies for. And that's where you got the A and B feature. The A feature was the one you went to go see. The B feature, you could stay for it. You could go home early. It's not a big deal. But a lot of directors made their bones in B movies, and that's why they're so beloved, because some of them were just outstanding. And then that guy immediately got an A picture. But those movies, to fit that bill, were all about 70 minutes long, right? The mm-hmm. B films were all under right. 80 minutes. And so you'd wind up seeing these sometimes amazing things, like, you know, we talked about Val Luton doing these horror films that were yeah. basically a little over an hour, and that's all you needed. And so I'm, I'm one that agrees with you. I believe that comedies and horror movies, for the most part, should be shorter because it's hard to maintain. So, yeah, when we went to watch the Quiet, A Quiet Place, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like 89 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. But then we got to the end of it, and I was like, that was exactly as long as it needed right. to be. I would be tense and sick if I had to watch this movie. That movie longer. was very heat up. Mm-hmm. And there's some other films I can mention where 
making the um, the experience longer be excruciating. You can have a longer horror film. You can do the the original Hunting, Robert Wise's film, or you can do The Shining. But these are based on novels, so there's a way of making the whole thing yeah, hang together. It's not all the right. horror part. There's all of the, the character hanging building. together pieces. Right. But for the most part, for a film, you don't want it to go on too long because then you start losing the pacing to it. Yeah. And I think that movies nowadays are by far too long. Yeah. It's almost as if, hey, we spent Although $80 million dollars time, on like, this. We need to make could it. Could we have made the Avengers right. shorter? Probably not. Not the last one. No. And I think There's that too much. they've tended to do pretty well with the pacing in those movies. Yeah. There's something happening every... And that really comes to... Um, I think you owe that to James Bond, really, which was instead of having one climactic piece, you have two or three a movie. And so you're working up to another climax. Oh, is that who it started it? Because like, that's, that's what I right. think about like Mission Impossible and the Fast yeah. and Furious movies. But I don't, my entirety, the entirety of my knowledge of James Bond is Daniel Craig. Right. So, so. but the, uh, something that really changed the movies was the pace of those, which is work to a new climax every 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so it worked that way. And then the films could go on for two hours, but it didn't feel because like it. Because you're doing a new thing every right. 20 minutes. We're working to a new climax. Right. And it was going to be a big one, and then there's going to be a bigger one, and then there's going to be a really big one. And the then... word is set piece, right? Well, now which it's is a, a weird piece. term. So this movie that mm. we just talked about, having right. to wait, was nominated for best art direction, set direction, best actor in a leading role, best actor in a supporting role, best actress in a supporting role. That's Diane Cannon. Mm-hmm. Who really deserved it. She was hysterical. Best Cinematography, Best Director, Best Music, Original mm-hmm. Score, Best Picture, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Because uh, Elaine May and Warren Beatty wrote it. Uh, oh, wow. Which is awesome. Uh, it won one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so it won Best uh, Art Direction, actually, of all of the things. Uh, Probably just for that room, just for Diane Cannon's bedroom. That was a masterpiece of art direction. Uh, How they managed to, to, I mean, I'm imagining they created the the print and then just draped it over everything. I mean, I'm sure that it, must have been, it was a thing. Right. You're looking up what one? Yeah. Best picture. The Deer Hunter. Oh, okay, well. The Deer Hunter one, yeah. Uh, coming home, heaven can wait. Midnight Express and an unmarried woman. Okay, so that's unfair because that was a really unfair competition. Yeah. So well, it was yeah, the fact that a comedy, uh-huh. like a pure comedy, was nominated for best picture. Right. That's kind of a big deal even now. Yeah. So I, I just, the 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 film I'm thinking of actually, this is all made me think of was um. Because when we were, again we were going over modern comedies or screwball comedies, I liked. What are we talking Ewan about? Ewan McGregor and oh, Sarah Paulson. Down with no, Love. That doesn't have Sarah Paulson in it. Yeah. Renee Zellweger? Yeah. And Sarah Paulson. I didn't her, know Sarah Paulson. Her best friend is Sarah Paulson oh, and David Hyde that. Pierce both have a scene where they accuse each other of being gay in order to fend off romance. And it's the most knowing wink to the yeah, audience. Yeah, right. Because one of <laughs> right. these things is true. <laughs> right. How dare you pretend to be a homosexual so I fall in love with you? Because throwing back to the original ones right. of those movies where it was... Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson, who was right. a homosexual and man. And inside the Hollywood community, was everyone knew that he was gay, pretty much. And just it was a very well-kept secret because they believed in his bankability as a romantic star. And that would end it. And so in an effort to keep Rod Hudson, Rock Hudson undercover... Uh, the studio agreed to throw Tab Hunter to the press. Right. And it 
with the fear that they had Frog Hudson was absolutely true. It killed Tab Hunter's career dead. But I don't. Yeah, I, it's not a. It's not a. I mean, it's too big a subject for right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. It was. It was. It used to be a very sad world in that respect, um, along with several others. But yeah, uh, the other film that comes to mind is Morning Glory. I don't know that. Uh, oh, Rachel McAdams and Harrison, Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford and was it Diane Lane? Diane no, Diane Keaton. Keaton. Right. As they're like um, on a morning show together. Right. Yeah. She's trying to run a morning show. She's a young producer, and she's. Does it by uh, she is trying to make her bones by attracting Harrison Ford, who is, I guess, a very uh, like a Walter Cronkite figure, right? Attracting him back so into doing and serious this sort of fluffy and morning so show. So above a fluffy morning show, exactly. And yeah. it's it's a that's another one where there's just a lot of Rachel McAdams, right? That's your name. I guess so. There are a thousand Rachel, but Rachel I believe McAdams, it is Rachel, Rachel McAdams. And, and, but um, what was the one you came up with yesterday? Rachel McAdams, Rachel Weisz, or is Isla Fisher, Jenna Fisher. <laughs> no, Isla, Isla Fisher looks like um, Amy Adams. Amy Adams. It was Amy Adams, Rachel McAdams, to Rachel Weiss. Yeah. And then it was... Uh, <laughs> and then you've got the Emma, Emily, Amelia right. group. So that's... Emma Watson. Emma Clark, Amelia Clark, Emily Clark. Emily Blunt. Emily Cook. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia Cook. Olivia Cook. I don't know I'm who sorry. Em- yeah, that, right? That's who you mean? Right. Yeah. And then, the, then it's like the, the Chris's. Chris Pratt, Chris... Pine, Pine Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Liam Hemsworth. You can make these yeah, connections until you have an endless chain. <laughs> but Rachel McCann's is one of the most underrated comic She's actresses. always married to a time traveler. She is really, really funny. So, for the rest of this month, we are looking forward to seeing, from 1988, Coming to America. Mm. Neither of us have seen that movie. Not seen it. From 1998, Mulan. Neither of us have seen that movie. Have you seen it? I don't know. You're making a scratchy face. I don't know. Maybe It's an animated film. Okay. From Disney. And finally... From 2008, because June of 2008 was a bit of a rough year, mm. we're going to watch Kit Kittredge, an American girl. <laughs> now, that's going to probably be, I, I think that one I'm looking forward to, not because I expect Kit Kittredge, an American girl, to be a good film. Oh, it's good. But Doesn't because it have I, Abigail Breslin in I it? I have not seen She's any great. modern kids' movies. Well, you're going to do two back to back. We're doing it. There we go. Coming to America. Yeah. From a shithole country. No. <sighs> I know that's kind of we deflating. going to quote I, I him just, in this I, podcast. No, I, I don't know who you're talking about. Such okay. a person doesn't exist. So w- that's going to be our June. Heaven mm. Can Wait, Coming to America, Mulan, and Kit Kidridge, an American Girl. <laughs> that's so these are the weird. movies that have been released over the last four decades in, uh, in, in the month of June. You got me to watch a teen comedy already, so this is going to be <laughs> unusual. And I should see what's going to actually be released in June of 2018. Godzilla? What? No. Oh, 2019. I thought that was like 2019. 2019. I'm like, I thought we had to wait a no, long yeah, time. Yeah, we do have to. And I'm being very impatient about it. I want to see Godzilla. June 2018 movies. Ooh, The Incredibles 2. Jurassic World, where you're going to watch a lot of dinosaurs a fall into dinosaurs. the sea, which I'm not super excited about. Oh, Ocean's 8. Which I really want to see. Hereditary, which is a horror, horror movie. Film. I like horror films. I like good uh, ones. Which I've actually heard is different than, like, it's a slower burn than the commercial would make you think. 
Tony Collette is great, so we'll be watching that. Tony for Collette's sure. always great. Um, and then a bunch of things I don't care. Oh, tag! I do kind of want to see that. Speaking of screwball comedies, and that would be because that a screwball comedy has to have have an outrageous premise. That's and that one has an the idea of a group of it's adult a fun men premise though. Having a tag competition that extends well into their middle age years. Yes. That, that sounds. Like the Sicario um, sequel, we haven't seen the first one. I have one. to see the first one. I've heard it's good. Upgrade, which I'm pretty sure is the $6 million man pre $6 million man. Right. So how mad are they? Or They're doing $6 billion, I guess, dollar man with Mark Wahlberg. And then Superfly? I don't Wait, know what Superfly? this is. That's what it says. What do you mean as in the Superfly? Or is it's this... unclear to me. That would be weird. African-American I've... cocaine dealer yeah, who tries priest. to secure... One more deal before getting out of the business. Oh, it's like a heist film. Uh, who's the who's playing Superfly? Uh, Michael K. Williams? No, hold on. Let me go uh, to IMDb. This is just to inform you while you're looking. Superfly was a real product of. Is this a, like a remake of a, a right. black exploitation film or something? That was a cornerstone. That one and Shaft were the movies. Oh, I thought and Superfly was like a a remake of the 1972 black exploitation. Right. <laughs> Thanks, IMDb. That just all it says in the yeah. in the introduction is the movie is a remake of the 1972 black right. exploitation film Superfly. Also, I didn't know black exploitation was spelled with an X, so I'm just getting all of my. It is. Yes. To make it cooler, that's also why you fire your gun sideways like that. <sighs> but I don't know how you could update that movie because it's really. Trevor Jackson as uh, young bud blood priest. priest. Jason Mitchell is Eddie. Those characters are not named well, Superfly. Well, no, Superfly is not the name of the character. Priest oh. would be the name of the character. Okay, so that's right. Who which it is, is ironic. Trevor Jackson? Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is I, I I don't know how they're going to do that because it just is so out of. You know who Trevor Jackson is? Aaron from Grownish. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. But if you're looking at black exploitation movies, there's like. Shaft, there's Superfly, there's the Mac, which was filmed in Oakland. Um, just like the cornerstones of that whole kind of cinematic movement. But Superfly... Is Return of the Mac about that? Possibly, yeah. No, I I'm going to have it. that song stuck in my head. No, 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 it's a song. Right. Um, but he spends half the movie snorting cocaine. Uh, a priest does. So does Before Scarface. He beats the shit out of a cop. <laughs> well, there's... There's several, every one of those films I just mentioned features a scene, I believe in Shaft 2, I'm trying to remember, where somebody beats the hell out of a cop. It's just a cathartic yeah. moment. And like, Sometimes yeah. you got to beat the crap out of a cop. I mean, oh, I don't... Yeah. Mm, yeah, I saw another disturbing video. How many, you know? So... But, yeah, so I can imagine this is the political climate to watch somebody beat the hell out of a cop. Well, there you go. That's why they're releasing that in June. So, many things coming out in June so that we weird. will also be seeing. We all have our crosses to bear. All right. So that come, that brings us to an end. Right, it to does. To an end. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we have social medias. Uh, we are on Twitter, at LatecomersPod, mm-hmm. and you can email us at LatecomersPod at gmail.com. Uh, if you would like, you could review us on Apple Podcasts. You should review us. That would be amazing. It will, it will actually Give us get you stars. points in your afterlife. It's true. Mr. Jordan says so. Mm, I can't guarantee that James Mason has said any such thing. I, I can't. I just will. <laughs> and um, I'm on Twitter at Amity Armstrong. We I have, should be on Twitter. Well, get a I Twitter should. then. I will. Find a tweet. tweet. 
And then what was I saying? You were talking about my book. Facebook. No, I wasn't. I was not to your book yet. Okay. We're on Facebook. We have a page and a group. Join both. I actually like contributing to the Facebook group. Well, there you go. I'm going to put funny things this week. I like it. And, um, yes, Lemuel's book is on Amazon. Now, you should buy it because of the recent holiday. What recent holiday? Um, I believe yesterday was the convergence of Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price all had birthdays within two days of each other. Okay, yesterday as of the recording of this, not yesterday as of the release of this. this. And so in celebration of the fact that the, you know, Curia Malefica had a birthday uh, yesterday. Go buy a book of ghost stories. Go buy a book of ghost stories. (laughs) Sealing Night, S-E-E-L-I-N-G. Like in Shakespeare. Night, N-I-G-H-T. Nice um, well, it could be a Knigget. Knigget. Sealing Knight, which is a story about um, a man trapped inside of a suit of armor and an enterprising mouse with a can opener. Hmm. I'm writing it. That would be a children's book. Seems like. Yes, you know, the one Unless mouse. the can opener went too deep. When there's two mice and they're in a museum. And one gets stuck a in a suit of armor. She relives it. And the other one calls, Help! Help me make it through the night! Thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, better Better late late than than never. never. Oh, that was terrible. That was a great joke.